because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I hope you'll stay there as I continue my series. It's good to be back in the pulpit I love the fact that we have a plurality of elders and we can have different ones preach and open up God's Word, but I do love to preach and it's been something I've looked forward to for quite some time. And so I have been, for those that are visiting, walking through this gospel according to John. It is a biography, so to speak, in modern terms by the Apostle John about the Lord Jesus Christ given by inspiration of God. And so I've titled my series, Conversations with Christ. And I took my title right out of the passage where they said, Can it be that this is the Christ? Can it be that this is the Christ? And really, I always try to give you my entire sermon in a sentence. So if you decide to just zone out, if you get this, at least you've got something to take with you. So here's my entire sermon in a sentence. Can it be that this is the Christ? The most important question to ask with the most eternal consequences for an answer. This is truly the most important question you're going to ever ask. Can it be that this is the Christ? And how you answer that question will indeed have eternal consequences. Now to get your minds running as we help to hop into this passage, let me ask you a couple things by way of introduction. I want to have a bit of fun with you this morning. I don't know about you, but you grow up hearing things that your parents say. You know, like, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. I I would really like to have a conversation with my parents next week and say, yeah, that's not true. We have these expressions, you know. Uh, Newfoundlanders have enough of them. If you don't shut up, I'll knock you into next week. Like, that's quite an expression. One that I don't think is actually possible. Okay? But is there such a thing as a stupid question? Can someone ask you a stupid question? Because all of my life I grew up hearing my teachers and my professors say, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Ask all your questions. Okay, so if there is no such thing as a stupid question, let me ask you this then. Can we ask a question without ever wanting an answer? Can you ask a question without ever wanting an answer? Because I submit to you that's what you find in John 7, 25 to 36. You see, to be questioning does not mean you're actually looking for the truth. It could be that you use questions to deflect your inner motive, simply to rationalize a conclusion you've already come to. And if you've noticed, we see that happening in 2018. 
here in Canada, the United States, and really around the world in the developed countries. How do we do politics today? Have you ever noticed that? How often do we talk about a person but never the person? I mean, how often do we hear things talked about when we never talk about their character, their demeanor, their track record, and what they've done? In other words, most of current events today is the politics of the situation, not principles, not having a long view of life, not comparing history, not taking the time to have an actual logical discussion. And you know this to be true. I don't have to prove it. Because even in this room here amongst us, we are tempted to often give in to the opinions of the opinion makers. We, we get caught up with, those, with the loudest voices, those who have the quickest tongues, those who can make us laugh or rile us up, those who have the, the, the sarcastic comebacks. Our world today is all too often, let me say this, simply an uninformed mob hysteria gone wild, especially with social media. And believe it or not, the one thing you learn from history is that we never learn from history. That's the truth. And you see this because this idea of a mob hysteria gone wild but is uninformed was not unlike Jesus' day. You see, they've got questions, but they're not looking for the truth. Rather, this crowd wants to confirm they're already arrived at conclusions. And today we're going to see and focus on the crowd's reaction to Jesus because you'll see three of them in the passage. In the very first verses, some are confused. Can it be that this is the Christ? Some are are curious. Maybe he is. Can anyone else do what this guy has done? But eventually it all leads to contempt. Send the armed guard to arrest him. We want to shut him up. And yet, you'll notice in the passage, Jesus never leaves his mission. He came to do the will of the Father, to give glory to God, to display the Trinity's greatness by showing the love of God towards mankind, which, newsflash, is all of you in this room. Again, Jesus is going to zoom right past all of this crowd's impressions, their expectations and their ideas, and even their felt desires, because we all have them. And he's going to penetrate to the inner need of humanity, the inner need of all of us here today, and that is this, to have our hearts right with God. But I do want you to take note of something in this passage, especially if you're jumping into this series. You notice that we've moved from the focus of on Jesus to the focus of the response of the crowd. You see, the Apostle John, who wrote this, does a wonderful, masterful job in weaving his narrative together. He focuses on individuals and crowds and groups, and he uses these signs and major statements of God. In fact, seven major signs in the Gospel of John and seven I am statements. We've already seen five signs. We've already had Jesus give us two of his seven I am statements, and yet he also uses feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booze, the the Feast of Dedication or the Passover Feast. All of these things John uses to give us markers of time and highlight the irony of the questions that this crowd asks. And yet the whole time we're headed somewhere. You see, we are headed to the ultimate sign and wonder, which was the cross. We're headed to the resurrection. And then we're headed to a decision. And every 
human will have to make this decision. And that's why John leaves the purpose statement of his gospel for the very end of his gospel in John chapter 20, 30 and 31. Remember, I see some smiles of the people because I'm going to quote this verse every time I preach in John. Because John wants you to arrive at a conclusion, and here it is. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. It wasn't just the seven. John wants you to know, I've handpicked these seven so that you would know something which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's what he asks you to believe. And then he tells you the result of your believing. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John writes 20 chapters to say, here's why I wrote this. That's not usually the way you get most books. Most books try to grab you at the very beginning and hopefully make you hang on so you'll read to the end. John says, no, I'm going to front load my book with all of the stuff, and then I'm going to tell you at the end, here's why you've been reading this. Now, as a quick refresher, if you remember, those of you that are uh, called Calvary your home, back in John 7, verse 1, we start with Jesus having a bit of a showdown with his own family. There's a bit of a brother scrimmage that goes on. And his own stepbrothers challenge him to go up to Jerusalem and prove who he is. In other words, they basically say, listen, since you think you're all that, why don't you stop talking to us and go up to Jerusalem and prove to us that you are who you claim to be. Of course, Jesus does not give in to his brothers because he doesn't follow them. He operates on the timetable of his father, God. Eventually, though, John tells us that Jesus does go up to Jerusalem for this thing called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And the most exciting and fun-filled feast of Israel is the Feast of Booths. I'll tell you a little bit more about this next week. It's filled with laughter and joy. It's in the fall of the year. The work's been done, and now it's time to just chill out and relax and anticipate the coming of the Messiah. And the giving of the Holy Spirit. And that's, again, what we're going to look at next week. But I want you to always remember this in this particular section of John. Starting in chapter 5 and working all its way to chapter 12, you see a growing oppression, a growing opposition, and there's a building tension between Jesus and everyone else. And in actuality, in six months from these events in John 7, this same crowd, these same Pharisees and chief priests and all that are going to crucify Jesus in just six short months. And you can feel it coming. But as the tension builds, let me take you through the reaction of the three of the crowd and see which one fits you. Number one this morning, the crowd's confusion about Christ. There's the crowd's confusion about Christ, and you see that in verses 25 to 29. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm amazed when I see questions that never get answered. And you see that in 25 to 29. Right out of the gate, these guys say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? There's their question. Is not this the man? Now, you've got to realize, not everyone knows the evil intentions of the religious leaders, but many are starting to figure it out. Many in the crowd, as the days have turned into weeks and weeks into months, as the opposition, and you have a whole history of it if you read the Gospels, multiple times they tried to stone Jesus, to seize him, to grab him. We're going to see it even in this passage. And so the crowd is starting to figure out, they want him dead, well, why does nobody do anything about it? And I love how they do this. See, the question is not looking for an answer. 
And this is what I was talking about earlier. It's more about the politics of who is Jesus. You see, the crowd is challenging their own religious leaders. Plus, now you can see the confusion of only a few verses ago in in chapter 7, 16 to 19. Because Jesus announced that the religious leaders were trying to kill him. And the crowd responded, you're crazy. Or at least you're demon-possessed. And only a few verses later, now they realize they're trying to kill him. Well, why won't anybody do anything about it? I love this. Some in the crowd knew there was indeed a plot to kill Jesus. They wanted him silenced. And yet Jesus is not silent. They wanted him shut up, but he doesn't pull back or hide. He doesn't soften the truth or compromise it. Look at verse 26. You see, the crowd sees Jesus teaching and proclaiming and announcing, and they see no one doing anything about it. And all the gospel writer tells us is this. There was a deep desire to stop Jesus, to silence him, to kill him, and they wouldn't. In fact, I would say they couldn't, not till it was the time. And I want you to hold on to that thought, because as you see next in verse 26, this whole scenario leads the crowd to ask another question. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now again, this is not a question they want an answer to. This was not a question of, we realize now, they're actually goading, they're actually mocking their religious leaders. And that's why I put it in my trital, because this is the question we're all going to answer, but tragically, this crowd is not looking for an answer. And the fact is, we'll see it next in verse 27, they already believe they've got the answer. Notice what they say. We know where Jesus was born. We know who his parents are. Do you remember back in John chapter 6, verse 42, when this same crowd said, Is not this Joseph's son? Do you remember back all the way back in John chapter 1? Even Nathaniel, one of the disciples under a tree, said, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? But what you and I have to realize as we read the God's word this morning, they are basing their knowledge on Jewish tradition, not biblical authority. Many Jews believe that the Messiah would surprise everyone. In fact, some even believe that Messiah himself wouldn't know he was the Messiah until Elijah came and anointed him. That was what had degraded from the Old Testament prophet's declaration to look for the Messiah. Now through the traditions of rabbis, they'd come to believe, sure, not even Messiah will know he's the Messiah. He'll just wander around the globe, and until Elijah shows up and anoints him, he won't even know who he is. And this is what John is doing. And the whole idea is, because you're sitting here going, Steve, my goodness, how stunned were they? Well, the idea is that you and I as the reader, we get it. We get it. He's telling us they didn't get it. But this is supposed to bring you and I to a conclusion. I love this stuff. As one commentator puts it, Richard Phillips, they needed to get their ideas about the Messiah from God's Word and not worldly traditions. Because that's how they were deciding life. And this is classic stuff. Now, before you all get high and mighty on yourself, let me step on some toes. Because what you have here is classic armchair quarterback mob stuff. We all know what this is like in Newfoundland. If you're from Newfoundland, you know this, because you know this in the politics of Newfoundland. It doesn't matter who our premier is. It doesn't matter what political striper is, whether it's blue or red or, or orange. It doesn't matter. We all know how this province should be run better than those who run this province. That's a sport in Newfoundland. We know this. 
We all know how to solve the problems of taxation and hydro rates and what to do with the oil revenues. We all know what social programs versus rural programs and we're supposed to have and all these things. We are experts in this. And in case you're thinking, well, Steve, I'm not politics, this is my game. Okay, let's get closer to home. We all know how to run the church, right? Everybody's an expert in how to run the church. What the pastor's job is, how or where he should spend his time. We know how to do budgets better than anyone, right? We can break down that even further. We know, and we're experts in telling other people what's wrong with their marriage. We know how to tell other people how to raise their kids. We know how to tell other people what to do with their finances. Are you getting the picture yet? We are way better at giving advice than taking it. We are way better at assuming the worst in others and yet wanting everyone to give us the benefit of the doubt. If you want to prove that, just to have someone assume on you and see how you feel and react. Just have someone come up to you that either doesn't know you or doesn't know you very well and let them tell you how you feel and see how you react. But notice how Jesus reacts in his passage, how he responds Jesus simply tells them the truth. He says, look at what he says in our passage. He says in verse 28, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught them in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord, and he who sent me is true. And notice this indicting statement, And him you do not know. I know him, he says in verse 29, For I come from him and he sent me. You see, Jesus simply tells them the truth. He charges on the unbelieving Jews ignorance of God whom they profess to serve and who for whose honor they profess to be jealous. And you'll notice, with all their boasted zeal of true religion and the true God, they didn't even really know God. In fact, Jesus seems offended at the way they pretend to know God while not knowing Him at all. And can I ask you here this morning, when was the last time you've experienced that? Because I have. Have you ever not been offended when someone comes up to you and tries to tell you about someone that you know and you know they don't know? When someone tries, I see shaking heads, you've experienced that, right? If someone comes up to you and says, hey, do you know about so-and-so? Let me tell you about them. And you know them, like they're your friend, and this person hasn't even met them, and they're telling you what they're all about. Don't you feel that primal urge to go, listen, now why don't you back your truck up now? Let me tell you and set you straight. Jesus seems offended that this crowd was going to tell him about God the Father. And so he says, you you don't know him. You don't know him. And if you notice in verse 29, does that not sound like John 1.1? He says, look at verse 29 again. He says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Do you remember the very beginning of this gospel? When John gives us his introduction, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it must have been that the Jews understood very clearly what Jesus was claiming, because look at their reaction in verse 30. They wanted him arrested. Whatever he said, they understood it to be offensive, to be blasphemous. And I want you to see the irony. This is what John is an expert at in his gospel. They are challenging the religious leaders to get on with it. They're basically, this crowd is saying, you're the experts for crying out loud, not even us. Even we know where Jesus is from. 
Once again, we've got folks thinking in earthly terms in the immediate versus the eternal. Thinking as if they are the judges and the authority. They know Jesus, they say. They know where he comes from. They know the right thing to do. And wait, as we'll see in a minute, they think they know what the issues of life are, what their needs are, and how or what Jesus should do. But look hard again at verses 28 and 29. John tells us that Jesus proclaimed Don't pass over that word. What that means is in the face of this opposition, in the face of this oppression, in the tension that is building up, Jesus still acts with authority. It's prophetic authority. The leaders are hiding and conniving. Jesus is front and center declaring and proclaiming. And why? Why is he like this? Why won't he be silent? Why won't the people stop him? And the answer is coming. But for now, notice, the Jews knew nothing rightly of God the Father. Jesus, on the contrary, could say, I know him as no one else does. Matthew, that text collector that Jesus saved, said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you understand how offensive this was to the listening crowd? If I was going to paraphrase verses 28 and 29, I love this in modern 21st century English, this might be what it sounded like. And that provoked Jesus, who was teaching in the temple, and he cried out, yes, you think you know me and where I'm from, but that's not where I'm from. I didn't set myself up in business. My true origin is in the one who sent me, and you don't know him at all. I come from him. That's how I know him. He sent me here. So on this second Sunday of July, let me ask us, how many of us here today think we know Jesus? Now be honest. How many of you go, no, 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 listen, Steve, I know him. How many of us are self-proclaimed experts in Jesus? But do we actually know Jesus? Not just about him. Do you actually read his word and pray to him and apply what we learn and as a result become more like him? You see, here's the irony. Here's the hypocrisy of the modern church. So many people today, even in this church, in this city, and churches in this city, would say, we know Jesus. We, we believe in Jesus. We can tell you all about Jesus. And a watching world is saying, well, if you know him, how come you're not like him? Uh-oh. Remember, I've told you many times, Calvary, my dad's coming this week, and he's, him and my mom will celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary, and I've said many times that the older I get, the smarter my dad gets. My dad used to say, Steve, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. When I was a teenager, I thought that was the dumbest thing a father could say to his son. Now it's all I ever say to my kids. Your walk talks louder than your talk talks. See, Jesus explains to this confused crowd, you think you know me, but you don't know, and you claim to know God the Father, but you don't. I do. Why? Because I'm from him and sent from him and am him. You see, all they were thinking about was Nazareth. 
All they were thinking about was Mary and Joseph. They had no concept of the fact that, no, this, this guy, and because they were so wrapped up in traditions, as you'll see later on in this passage, no one actually bothers to pick up a Bible, the Old Testament and the prophets, and actually learn that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. You see, if they were wanting answers to their questions, they could have found them. But see, this group was asking questions they didn't want answers to. And so now, this causes the reaction in verse 30. And now we see the crowd is not only confused, but now secondly, the crowd's curiosity of Christ in verses 30 and 31. Now, you must realize that whatever Jesus said at the end of verse 29, it must have been a blasphemous statement that could have only meant that he was claiming equality with God because verse 30 says, they were seeking to arrest him. Those are active words. Those aren't passive words. They wanted him arrested. They were calling for it, yet no one moves. Notice it says, but no one puts forward a hand. And watch next a few words, because his hour had not yet come. Now I want you to see something here. I want you to realize how much John brings that out to us. All the way back in John chapter 2 verse 4 at the wedding of Cana when Jesus performs his miracle, Jesus will look at his own mother Mary and say, woman, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7 verse 30, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 8 verse 20, my hour has not yet come. But six months later at the Passover in John 12, 23, Jesus would tell his disciples and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I don't want you to miss these little phrases. I want you to realize what John the Apostle is wanting you and I to understand here. Listen, in the midst of this opposition, in the midst of this oppression, in the midst of this persecution, God's plan is God's plan. Jesus' boldness wasn't because he was brave. It was because he rested in the sovereign God, his Father. Jesus knew he couldn't be touched until his mission was fulfilled. That old pastor A.W. Pink says, They could no more arrest Jesus than they could stop the sun from shining. Until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate Son bowed to His Father's good pleasure, He was immortal. And it's funny because we don't think this way. Some of you I know here have been to Israel. I've had the joy of going to Israel um, four or five times now and taking tours. And it's on my bucket list to go back because I want to take my wife and my kids. You know, every time I go, every time I go to Israel, somebody walks up to me. You know what they say? Aren't you afraid? Aren't you nervous of suicide bombs and terrorists? Listen, folks, until God says it's my time, I can go anywhere. And if it's my time, it doesn't matter if I'm in the middle of Beirut or if I'm in the Gaza Strip or I'm on the West Bank or I'm in my bathtub. If God says it's time, it's time. And until he says it's time, it's not time. That's profound, isn't it? You just go about doing your father's business, and that's what Jesus does. J.C. Ryle, I love this. In fact, we learned this for those of you that are at our retreat. Andy told us in the retreat, Paul could explain to the Philippians how to be content and bold, how to be patient and courageous. Remember, in, in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. I have a mission. You have a mission. We are created by God for a purpose. We've been redeemed by God for His glory. And we've been commissioned by God through Jesus, filled with His Holy Spirit. 
And that's why J.C. Ryle says Christians live in a world where God overrules all times and events and nothing can happen but by God's permission that we may boldly say to every cross, thou couldst have no power against me except it were given thee from above. So whether you're walking through troubles in your marriage or you're struggling with raising your kids or you've got that boss you find hard to deal with, or you've got that unexpected bill, or you've just been called and you've got to go see a doctor for that unannounced diagnosis, or you struggle in any way, shape, or form, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, none of it can touch you unless God's Father says, I am with you in this because I have a plan in this. I love this. And that's why Jesus and every believer can say with the psalmist, I trust in you, O Lord, my times are in your hand. I love what I read this week, Edward Clink aptly puts it, Jesus had just made clear that the people do not know God. The narrator, that is John, makes clear that the people cannot stop God. And that's what happens. But now we come to a troubling verse, verse 31. And we come to our second question. It starts with a statement. Look at what they say. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Many of the people believed him. Now, without a doubt, there were folks that did come to believe in Jesus. But you've got to remember all the way back to John chapter 2, again in John 4, again in 5, again in 6. We've had this group... This crowd, they've been amazed by Jesus, swept up with those signs and wonders that he did, whether it was healing by the pool of Bethesda or feeding the 5,000 or walking on water or whatever it was. They wanted to believe him. They tried to make him king by force. But we, we also know they turned on him as quickly as they said they believed on him. And you'll notice there's no glowing admiration from Jesus after this verse. In fact, it reminds me of what John tells us back at the end of John chapter 2. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast only nine months earlier, many believed in his name when they saw the signs and the wonders that he was doing. But notice, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here is how we know that this is the type of belief that John's been talking about. Look at the question of verse 31. Can any other people, can anyone else do these signs? Notice that this man has done. That is not a declaration of saving faith. When the Christ appears, will he do more than this man has done? That's the belief of human reason. That's the belief of human assumption. They say this Man, Now contrast that with the disciples. Remember, Brother David, our intern, challenged us a couple of weeks ago from Mark when, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's different from you're just a dude. When Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples marveled that even the wind and the waves obeyed him and they worshipped him. You see, to truly believe in Jesus is to listen to Him. It's to trust Him. It's to obey Him. And may I submit, it's to become like Him. Not this crowd. Oh, they're curious. They're interested. It reminds me of Jesus' parable in Matthew 13 
When he talks about how the gospel would spread forth and it's like a sower sowing seed and some falls on hard ground, but then some falls on stony ground and some falls on shallow ground. And if you remember, the seed that falls on the stony ground and, 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 the, and the shallow ground is, is, is those that still kind of respond. They hear the gospel and it looks like they're responding, but then it says that two things stop it from being real. Persecution and worldly wants. Pressures from the world or oppression by the world. But alas, we are once again confronted by John the Apostle with the results of confusion and curiosity because in verses 32 to 36, the crowd's growing contempt for Christ. Now in verses 32 to 36, there are two great lessons for us to learn. But just before I unpack that, let's, be, let's walk through the dialogue. The religious leaders now make for strange bedfellows because I find a lot of humor in verses 32 to 36. Because it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, you've got to read under the lines here. If you do a bit of study, you'll find out the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the common man. They were actually popular with the common man. They were the ones that went out into the towns and the villages. They often ran the synagogues. But the chief priests, that was the Sadducees. All right, I love just saying that word because they must have been sad, you see? All right, that's my cheesy humor for today. All right, they were the ones that were political in office. They'd been elected. They had a, a dynasty, and they had the, the control of, 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 the, of the Temple Mount. And for the most part, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not friends. They resented each other. They competed for the love and affection of the people against each other. The Pharisees believed in miracles, and they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. In fact, the Sadducees had largely become a political puppet of Rome. But here they've got a common enemy in Jesus, and they want him shut up. They wanted him taken out of the picture because the people are talking about him. Oh, now it's in muttered, hushed tones. But you've got to realize days are going by and the Temple Mount is supposed to be full and a buzz of activity and they're supposed to be the center of attention and instead, wherever Jesus is, there's a crowd and people are talking and maybe they're, they're having uh, their, their, their hummus or maybe they're having their, their shawarma and they're talking about, Gee, have you talked to Jesus? Did you hear what he did today? Did you see how things... And they're like, wait a second, he's the center of attention, we're not the center of attention. And once again, we're given a summary by John because in essence, verses 30 to 32 remind us that the crowd couldn't physically capture Jesus. The second group was spiritually unable to believe in him, and now this group couldn't arrest him. So then, what do they do? Verses 36 to 33, or 33 to 36, they, they get the, 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 the temple guard and they go, go arrest him. I love this because they can't do it. Because Jesus looks at him. The crowd that are curious, the crowd that are confused, the crowd that say, well, we'll believe on you on our terms. Now have made Jesus the focal point. Now these, these armed guards of the, of the chief priests show up and Jesus looks at him, them and says, hey, I'll be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? None of you are confused by this, are you? This makes perfect sense for Jesus to respond this way. Notice what the Jews said to one another. Where does this guy intend to go? What do you mean he's going to go somewhere that we will not find him? Now, notice this. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you will teach me and you'll not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Notice that Jesus moves from his origin to his mission. And then he follows it up with his judgment. Jesus declares that his time is almost up. And oh, this group will think they've stopped Jesus. In six months, they'll finally think, we've stopped him. We've killed him. We've silenced him. We've gotten rid of him. Only to find out that they were tools in God's great redemptive plan. In fact, killing Jesus only cements victory for Jesus. And so, verse 34 is haunting. Jesus looks at this crowd and the guards sent to capture him and all those gathered looking and listening in. He says, the God you seek to defend can only be known through the one you're attacking. Remind you of chapter 1, verse 18? No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. And I love it because in verse 35, you've got that last question. How can he say this? What does he mean by this? See, they're mocking Jesus, and yet even in mocking him, actually predict the actual future. This is why I think God has a sense of humor. Because this crowd says, where's he going to go? He's talking about disappearing. Where could he possibly go to be with? Maybe he'll go to the dispersion and teach the Greeks. Wink, wink. What do you think happens after Jesus is crucified, rises from the dead, and is ascended? What does he do in Matthew 28, 18 to 20? Right? Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. What does he say to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? I'll make you witnesses to me where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Don't you find this hilarious? All the New Testament is basically doing what these unbelievers laughed at. They're like, where's he going to go? Maybe he'll go to the Gentile region and share the gospel there. Yep, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And they couldn't believe it. It makes me think of how Paul said in Corinthians that he would use the foolish to confound the wise. He would use the weak to confound the strong. In fact, if you read all four Gospels, you will find unregenerate people often say what God's going to do, and they don't even believe it. Verse 36 is simply the musings of a confused, curious, contemptuous group. But what does it mean? What does it all mean? My friends, I can ask, can I ask you, think about this in life, because I don't know about you, but at 46 years of age, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, what does it all mean? I've been in a room with folks that have died their last breath four times in my life. I held an eight-day-old baby as he breathed his last breath and died. I've been in a rubber room twice overnight with people that have attempted to take their life. And the one constant that I always get asked, what does it all mean? All of a sudden now they have questions that they want answers to. So don't forget I told you there's two great truths in 32 to 36. And I finish with this. Jesus says in verse 33, I am with you, but it's a short time. So I want you to see this first great truth. Jesus is promising salvation again. I am with you. The one whom you seek, the one whom you need is right here in front of you, but I'm not here long. 
And yet, once again, Jesus is reminding everyone, I'm here and there is nothing anyone or anything can do about it. I'm here and the next six months is he and we know. J.M. Boyce puts it like this. It is the same today. Martin Luther, who faced similar problems in his time, wrote on these verses, Who is Christ's protector? Who fends off his enemies? No one. Nothing is said about many thousands of mounted soldiers or about 30,000 foot soldiers who defended him. No, his entire armor is a little hour granted him until his crucifixion. That hour has not yet at hand. And since it was not, all the designs of his enemies against him were futile. Luther then concludes by noting that it was always so. Nothing can touch the Christian unless it coincides with God's explicit command and order. So listen, my friends, this morning. God is with you. If you're alive, God's got a purpose for you, a plan for you. See the powerful hand of God. See His power and plan are offered to you today. So don't reject Him Bring your curiosity and your confusion, even your contempt to Jesus. He is the only one here for a little while, and He is here now. And Christian, see the confidence of Christ, and may it be yours. But there's also another great truth. Because then he says, then I'm going to Him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Don't miss this, what Jesus is telling them and us today, that the day of God's grace for them would not last forever. See, there's a great Bible truth taught here. It's the possibility of men seeking salvation when it is too late. And crying for pardon and heaven when the door is shut forever. Men may find out their folly and be filled with remorse for their sins and yet feel that they cannot repent. Listen to this. No doubt true repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true. This is what Paul talked about last week. And you can search the Bible, whether it was Pharaoh or King Saul or Judas Iscariot, all of them could say, I have sinned. See, God is unmistakably and unspeakably merciful, but there is a time limit to His mercy. God can be angry, justfully so. He can be provoked to leave men alone. That's why the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. I am haunted by the words of Jesus when he preached in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So if you're here this morning, friends and church, Paul tells us that today is the day of salvation. It says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And so church, what is the state of your commitment? Have you sought Jesus and found him? Have you entered into the deep security that commitment to Him brings? And I hope you have. Or else that you will make that commitment today. Listen to me. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to live with you and you for Him. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. 
My friend Paul Tripp says, The disaster of sin and the rescue of grace level the playing field. No matter who or where you are, we all have been damaged by the one and desperately need to be restored by the other. And so, this morning, where are you on the spectrum? Confused? Curious? Does Jesus fit in your ideas of who he should be or how he should act? Are you curious, intrigued? You've got desires. There are things about Jesus that appeal to you, but you're not convinced. Jesus simply isn't living up to your expectations. Let me again caution you this morning. If you keep subjecting Jesus to your ideas and your standards and your expectations, you'll always end up with contempt. More than just rejection, it's the desire to shut him up. But let me give you a fourth option as I finish. How about this? Instead of confused or curious or contemptuous, how about confession of Christ? What about confession in Christ? See, I want you to know, my friends and visitors and family, Jesus will not be silenced. You're not going to get rid of him. You'll never get him out of your mind or from the recesses of your soul. His creative power and redemption, redemptive mission is unstoppable. All you'll be able to do is either respond and admit, submit, and trust, or you will reject, you'll pretend, you'll try to drown him out, you'll mistrust him. But here's what you need to wrestle with. Why can't you silence Jesus? Because right here, right now, today, on this day in July, He is coming to you, whispering in your ear to the, to the void that's in your heart and saying, come to me. And Christian, Jesus is calling to you right now about something too. Oh, today would you listen to Him and know the freedom of salvation. Listen to the words of this great hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now listen. You can't silence Jesus. You can't stop Jesus. But Christian, he can be ignored. He can be ignored by proud unbelievers who close their ears to the world's only gospel. And Christians can close their ears to Him. So how do you not ignore Jesus? Rehearse the gospel to yourself over and over again. Listen to this great quote. Three imputations are at the heart of the Bible. Adam's guilt is imputed to the entire human race so that we're all born in sin. So that's the great equalizer for everybody here this morning. Every one of us is a sinner. But then my my guilt and my sin is imputed to Jesus. He died on Calvary's tree for my sin. And then finally, Jesus' life of obeying the commandments of God is commuted to me where I live in faith. So now, not only does God forgive me of all of my sin, but now God the Father sees me through the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so I can live for Him. And that's why J.C. Ryle says, Happy is the man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is he who reads it. But happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. Don't ignore Jesus. And that's the challenge for you, because I know I'm speaking to a lot of Christians. Young and old, men and women, married and singles, read God's Word. Husbands and wives, read God's Word together. Parents, read God's Word to your kids. And if I can, take a swipe at the men 
All men, read God's word personally for your kids. Read God's word to your kids. Let them see you and hear you read God's word. Could we be a church that would stop talking about Christ and the Bible and start acting like we believe it and follow it, but yet never read the Bible? What hypocrisy. If you want to know what's a sure way to be a Pharisee, a crowd member, is to be all concerned about Jesus, asking questions, having opinions, flirting around with the church and with church stuff, but never actually reading and applying God's Word. But you don't have to. And what's more, Jesus is there for you to teach you and help you and empower you and guide you and give you perspective and wisdom and boldness. If any of you lack wisdom, let them ask of God, James 1 tells us. We are called to think on Jesus in Philippians, Philippians 4 and to give our burdens to him. We're called to address God as Father because of Jesus and because Jesus ascended. He reigns and intercedes and is our advocate. So Jesus wants us to come to him and he promises when we will do, he makes us like him. And so church, remember, Jesus told the crowd he'd be with them a little longer and that they couldn't come with him. But to Christians, in Matthew 1, 28, he said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To the Christian, John says, Jesus says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I am, you will be also. And Paul, remember, said it best. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why? Because absent from the body is present with the Lord. So don't ignore Jesus. Praise God if you're convicted this morning. Want it and respond to it. Praise God for your trials and your temptations. They make you aware of your need for Him. Praise God for victory in Jesus, becoming more and more aware that you need Him, and He is the one that empowers you to get it right because Jesus was in it and behind it and fueled it. So don't ignore Jesus. Study Him, read Him, pray to Him, and then watch how we will change us into Him more and more for eternity. And as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to proclaim your word. And as our music team now comes and leads us in a last song, and my brother Steve comes and reminds us how the word of God fuels us to do something and respond. Lord, if there is one man or one woman here that's been playing church, they've been a part of the crowd and they're curious, they're confused maybe even contemptuous of Jesus. My God and my Savior, I pray that they will not leave till they come and find myself, another elder, a friend that has brought them to pray. And Father, that they will be introduced to you. Lord, if you are speaking and whispering into the ears of the heart of people, you cannot be silenced. May you not be ignored. And Lord, if there are Christian brothers and sisters here today, whether they be visitor or member, whether they've been here for a while or not here very long, if you are whispering into the air air about how they're living the Christian life, may they not push that out. May not think, okay, now if I just get through the song, I can get to lunch and all this will be over. Oh God, give us the courage to respond to whatever your Holy Spirit is whispering in our ear. In Jesus' name, amen.